Um, how's your week been? How are you guys going? Great, good. Hey? Um, did anyone have a problem during the week where they woke up and thought, gee, this might be the last day I see my family? Did any of you have that? Were any of you worried on your way to work or uni or whatever you do that, you know, gee, when I get out of the car, there might be an angry mob there ready to grab me and throw me in prison? No, it's I. It's all good. Um, but that's the kind of church we're talking about today, um, a church where those things were a reality. So I'm going to get into a bit of that soon, but uh, just a little bit about my week, um, if you'll permit me. Um, I was at a leadership summit in Sydney. Well, in the Blue Mountains, actually, but near Sydney. Um, so that is about 150 of the leaders of Crew, Campus Crusade, Powder Change, whatever they like to call themselves, around Oceania. So there's a bunch of people there. Don't try and find me. I'm not smiling. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I never do. So um, it was great to be there. As angry and ugly as I look in the photo, I actually had a great time. Um, I love coming up against other leaders that are doing God's work around the world and hearing their stories and swapping ideas and learning how to do things better. Um, so there's a bunch of people there from Australia, obviously, but there's also people from New Zealand, Fiji, Pacific Islands. Um, one of the most exciting stories was that uh, we're about to launch in a brand new country. In, well, not brand new. It's been there a while, but we've never been there. Um, Samoa. We've never had a ministry in the universities of Samoa and so that's cool. Some of the guys from Fiji have decided to go there, and uh, God's really provided for them. I um, wanted to just quickly give you a couple of stories by highlighting a few teams. So that's the Auckland team, and they were really cool because well, Auckland in New Zealand, they shared about how three years ago they hadn't seen anyone come to Christ on their campus, um, their campuses in Auckland for about two years, and they decided they really needed to change something, so they just started praying. They gave a book about prayer to all of their students, all the ones that were involved, all the Christians, and they split them up into groups and just started praying that God would save people on their campuses. This year, three years on from that, they still have those groups running and new people are connected into them. Um, the only thing they ask Christians that join their movement to do is join a prayer group and join an evangelism group. That's all they do. They don't do Bible studies or anything else like that. They just say, pray for new believers and then go out and find them. This year, so far, they've seen 65 new believers. So that's pretty cool. I mean, in all the campuses that I'm involved in this year, we've only seen two here in Australia. So prayer makes a difference, and I was really challenged by that. Um, speaking of spiritual fruit, that's the Fiji team. Um, they actually had a prayer goal this year of seeing 1,200 people come to Christ in the universities of Fiji. As you can see, there's not many of them, but they work with a lot of students. And so far, they've seen over, over 1,400 people give their lives to Christ. So I was just like... Why? Like, that's encouraging. That's praise God. That's awesome. But why don't we see that here in Australia? And it frustrates me because what are they doing right that we're doing wrong? Anyway, um, obviously, while I was there, it was pretty long days, lots of content, lots of input, lots of leadership classes to go through and exercises to learn about what's your kind of leadership and how God's made you and how to knock off some of the rough edges so you don't scare everybody away from working with you. Um, all good stuff I needed to learn. Um, the whole time I was there, though, I was trying to prepare this sermon in whatever spare time I got. And I was thinking about, you know, Smyrna, a persecuted church. I was thinking about the stories I was hearing. And I was thinking, how on earth can a Western church relate to a first century church 
that woke up every day thinking I might be in prison today. By the end of today, it might be the last day I see my family. I could be thrown to the lions. That was the reality they lived with. And how do I bring something out for us? How can we do the words of this prophecy when we have no idea, really? Well, I don't. I've never been persecuted like that. What they were going through. I have no idea how to do what was given to them. So, um, I'm going to get some more stories later, but for now, let me just pray, and then we'll get right into it. King Jesus, Lord of the universe, you're amazing. You're incredible. You're beyond comprehension. And you've put us here today. You've invited us to be part of your family, part of your work, part of building your kingdom here on earth. And you're coming back. See you coming on the clouds of heaven. Love that song. I'm looking forward to it. I want you to come soon. But I know that you're still waiting because heaven's not full yet. There's still people that you want to bring into your family. So help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, to to find something in your word today to ancient Smyrna that will galvanize us, that will push us, that will help us to step out of our comfort zone and reach out, reach to the church of Smyrna today and reach out to those around us. Help me as I speak to these guys. They all love you. They all want to follow you. They all want to get something out of church today. They all want to hear from you. So please, Holy Spirit, open their hearts and minds to receive your word and help me to speak the words you would have them hear. Amen. Okay, so let's go to the text. Revelation 2, 8 to 11. I'm sure you all want to follow along. I listened to Adrian's sermon while I was at Leadership Summit and he did a good job, but for the third time in this series I heard him say the words, you can't read and listen at the same time. So I thought, I can, but I'm not going to make you guys do that. So I'll read it and you can either listen or you can read along. Revelation 2, 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So I read that and reread that and tried to think about what that would be like as a reality, how I could bring something out for us. And um, yeah, I was just stumped for most of last week. But I kept hearing these stories of God working. Um, So I thought I'd start off by just having a quick look at what we know of Smyrna. So that's not a picture of Smyrna. I don't know where it is. I think it's just an artist's impersonation of some Christians being eaten up by nasty cats. Not all kitties are nice. Um, So Smyrna is in uh, modern Turkey. Uh, It was an ancient port city. It was first established as an Ionian, um, kind of like a trading port. But it was built on a hill on the end of a bay. So it was kind of like very hard to attack because from the sea it was high up on a hill. And from land you had to go across this narrow isthmus to get there. Well, Alexander the Great came along and smashed it, like he did a lot of places, and then he decided to move it. He said, why don't we have it on both sides of the bay, and therefore people won't be able to take it the way I did. (laughs) So um, Smyrna now stretches, or Izmir, as it's known in Turkey today, stretches right around the bay on both sides. A little bit like Melbourne, maybe, sort of stretches around that big water, or Sydney. Anyway, um, 
In Bible times, its chief export was perfumes. It was a trading port, but also it was located on one of the trade routes um, that led through Turkey between east and west. Um, we don't know when the church there was planted. This is the only reference to Smyrna in the Bible. Um, so we don't know when exactly it was planted, but most likely probably during the two years that Paul spent in Ephesus, since Smyrna is only about 60 miles away from Ephesus to the north. So it's quite likely that someone, either Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, maybe someone else, someone went there, shared the word of God there and founded a church there. And by the time John receives this revelation, there are They've been a thriving church, and they're now a persecuted church. Okay, so one last stat. Um, Izmir is one of the only places in Turkey which boasts a fairly decent Christian population, 4,000. That's fairly decent for Turkey. Less than 0.4% of the population of Turkey are Christians, which in numbers is about 250,000. Sounds like a lot, but when you're talking about a country of several million, it's not that many. Um... So yeah, there's two large churches in Izmir, an Anglican one and an Orthodox one, and those have about, um, about 3,000 of the believers there attending them, between them. And then there's a bunch of smaller assemblies which are more like us, a bit more Protestant. So, a few observations. Let's go back to the text, Revelation. And by the way, let me mention, I, I was really blessed this morning just hearing you know, Nicole sharing about King Jesus and Tiff reading that, and then Tim reading Psalm 13. I was like, whoa, God really sets this, these things up. Because, um, yeah, the warm-up reminded us of King Jesus, who he is. Um, and then Tim's reading Psalm 13. That is exactly the kind of thing that these guys in Smyrna would have prayed. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? They were having family and friends killed on a daily basis. They would have known about this kind of psalm. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. He has been good to me. Can you imagine saying that when your husband or wife had just been killed? I can't. That would completely ruin me. (laughs) These guys had great faith. Okay, back to Revelation. Um, There's a few observations I wanted to quickly bring out. Um, Number one, you all know I like interaction, so look through that little passage to Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 to 11. How does Jesus describe himself to them? Exactly, the first and the last who died and came to life again. Um, Those of you who've been reading Revelation will um, notice that to each church, Jesus portrays himself a little differently. But each of them is also a throwback to the way he is described in chapter 1. So when John first sees him, in chapter 1, verse 12, turned and saw the voice that was speaking, I saw seven golden lampstands, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, yada, 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 and so on. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, this is verse 17, as though dead, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, he didn't address himself like that to Ephesus. He said, I'm the one that holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. To Smyrna, he says, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life again. Why do you think that was significant for them? They're dying. (laughs) He's given them hope. I love what Ben said a few weeks ago. Jesus not only controls the um, death itself, he controls the passage to death. 
is like, I've been there, I've smashed it, I've destroyed death. No one goes that way unless I say so. Anyone that comes to me, I can free from that. So that's really cool. And that's what he's saying to these guys here. I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. There's hope, guys, in me. That's what he's saying. Now, there's another thing that he says to all of the churches. He actually says two things to all the churches. But um, this one, two little words. He says them over and over. What are they? Just look at the passage and tell me. I know. I know. I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about your works. I know about those who are Jews, who say they're Jews and are not. To each church, he says, I know. It was just a very real, I'm with you. This isn't a secret to me. The things you think that no one knows you're doing, I know. The things that no one seems to see, which really hurt, but you keep doing them because you're faithful, I know. Today, Willowburn, Jesus says, I know. I know about the things you do that you shouldn't be doing. I know about the things that you do that no one notices, but you do them because you love me. He sees the good, he sees the bad, and he says, I know. A couple of other observations. Though you may be poor, you are rich. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. What do you think he means by that? No wrong answers, I just want to hear your opinions. They might be physically very poor. Yep. And in Christ, they're very rich. Yep. They're better off, even though they're having a really hard time. They've got more reason to depend on God. They don't have much stuff. They might get caught on their way to work and thrown in prison. Their family might starve while they're there because they don't have a job to feed them. This is a reality for them. Though you are poor, yet you are rich. They have an inheritance in what matters. They're building up treasure in heaven. They're faithful and obedient even in the face of suffering and persecution. And they are reaping what matters, treasures in heaven. Um, I don't want to steal from people that are going to come after me too much, but have a look over at verse um, chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. So that's chapter 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Direct contrast, total opposite of what he says of Smyrna. I know of your poverty, yet you are rich. I think that's really cool, like to have God say to you, you're rich. I know you're doing it tough. I know half of you are starving. I know some of you are in prison. I know some of you have been killed and more are going to be killed but you're rich. And a bit like Adrian said last week, why does it matter when someone says you've lost your first love? It matters because of who they are. If King Jesus says you've lost your first love, that's something to be worried about. If King Jesus says you're rich, he owns the universe, holds seven stars here, no worries about riches, (laughs) he's got it all. So I think that's really cool. Jesus also says he knows about the slander of those who call themselves Jews but are actually followers of Satan. Most likely, because of um, early church history that we see in the book of Acts and some others in the New Testament, this was Jews of the circumcision party that were trying to impose more rules and regulations and betraying Christians that just wanted to follow Jesus, saying they had to do certain things. Um, We don't know for sure, but uh, yeah, 
Jesus knew about those too. And um, if you recall in the book of Acts, one thing that happened in Ephesus was um, they tried to, um, some silversmiths raised a mob, they tried to grab Paul, couldn't find him, so they grabbed some other believers, took them to court, tried to get them stoned, beat them up pretty badly, but eventually the Roman governor said, no, nothing to stand on, get out of here, throwing this out of court. Um, that's the sort of thing these Jews did. They considered themselves, yep, I'm followers of God, true Jews, but they're actually really detrimental um, to God's work. They were always ripping down the church, trying to force Christians to get back under the Jewish law. And they would go to the extent of stirring up mobs and betraying people and even taking money to betray Christians. So that was pretty sad. And about that as well, King Jesus says, I know. And then he says, <laughs> a complete oxymoron almost, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I know what you're living with, don't be afraid. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Can you imagine getting this letter? You know, you're meeting in secret, maybe out in someone's field, maybe in a dingy little building. You've got to keep the worship turned down because you don't want the local authorities to know. <laughs> and then you get this letter. Hey, guys, hey, guys, we've got a message from Jesus. John wrote it. He saw a vision. It says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I don't think they would have been too excited. <laughs> what kind of songs would they have been singing? Psalm 13. <laughs> How long will you leave us like this? I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But then the final admonition, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Um, I find this really hard to relate to. I've never had this kind of persecution. In fact, the worst I've ever had was being slapped in the face by a guy that didn't like the way I presented the gospel. It's all right. I turned the other cheek, hoping he'd hit me again, because after that, God gave me no further instruction. Anyway, um, <laughs> he didn't. So we were able to move on and continue the conversation. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's very hard to relate to these guys. They were going through some awful stuff. But I had the privilege of being at this conference um, this past week, and I met guys that are in some of these situations. In particular, I wanted to tell you a couple of stories from these guys. So this fellow over here, um, his name's Elton. He's from PNG. He's the only staff member we had at the conference from PNG. And these guys are from Indonesia, over here in the corner, those two girls. They're actually both full-time mums. Their husbands work, trying to provide for their family. They run the university ministry around being full-time mums. And I was like, oh dear, I better not tell Sarah about these girls. Um, <laughs> um, as you probably heard, UPNG, the biggest university campus in PNG, shut down fairly recently because of violence and protests and unrest among the students. What do you think they were protesting? Corruption. Yeah, someone said it. Yeah, corruption. People were taking money for all sorts of things and the services that they were supposed to be getting at uni just weren't coming through. Two meals a day instead of three. People taking tuition money and going on holidays. Things like that. It was pretty horrid. So the students launched a protest and it led to some violence, some buses were burned, some people were shot. Police joined in and shot a few more people. It was pretty bad. So our PNG fella, he's one of only four staff we have throughout the whole country of PNG. Um, I mean, there's only three big universities, but there's a bunch of smaller ones. So he told us some crazy stories. I'll tell you a couple of them. Um, the staff and students of Power to Change organized a prayer and relief team effort to look after other students that couldn't go home and didn't have any way of getting food. They decided that instead of eating three meals a day, they were going to eat one meal a day so they could give away the other two to people that didn't, students that didn't have anything to eat. 
they saw a whole stack of students that had been really antagonistic and violent come to faith in Jesus because these guys were truly loving them. Um, some other things they did. Um, there's these two guys, Christian students, they'd been all year, they'd been sharing books, okay? So they were doing the same course and they decided, right, we're gonna, we want to reach our, our village back home. They were from this remote village up in the highlands. And so this staff member that disciples them was telling the story. They decided that we're going to share textbooks. We're not going to buy one each. I'm going to buy this one and you're going to buy that one and we'll save the money that we get on not buying all of them and we're going to get some DVDs. They got the Jesus film, the film of Jesus' life. And so they got this film. Finally, after a whole semester, they were able to buy the DVD um, of saving their money. And then they were like, oh, sweet, the university's closed. We can go home and show our, our family the Jesus film. But there was a problem. Their village up in the mountains runs on a generator. And there was, so that was, that was the power source, no worries. We'll find a laptop or something to show it on. But they didn't have any way of showing it big, like a projector. We've got one we take for granted. So they thought, oh, that's all right, we'll hire a projector. And they looked at it, how much would it cost? $200, Aussie dollars. Well, that made their whole mission useless. They didn't have any money left. $200, that's all they needed. And so, yeah, our staff member that was there said, do any of you have $200? They're going to go and share that with their village now. So that was really cool. We were able to actually do something tangible. $200 isn't much to me. Yes, it is. But anyway, um, <laughs> to them, it's enough to hire a projector for a week and trudge it all the way up into the mountains so they can show their families a Jesus film. That's the kind of heart these guys have. So that's not really persecution. All right. Switch over to the guys in Indonesia. They are facing extreme oppression at the hands of some radical Muslims right throughout the country, but especially in the universities. Why? Because those young Muslims have got time on their hands and they've got lots of arrogance and anger. So they're organized. They get together and they have rallies about Christians. The Christian students don't like going to campus because they have a chance to be mobbed and beat up. But Muslim seekers are wanting to know why. People that have believed in, Muslim, in Islam all their life have been coming to these guys by night because they're worried about getting caught by their Muslim friends. And they're asking these students, what, what goes on? Why are you like this? Why, why are you willing to be beaten up, potentially killed, because of this Jesus guy you believe in? Sound familiar? That's a modern-day Nicodemus story. And I was, I was listening to this thinking, wow, these guys have got real faith. Um, those two ladies... Um, one of them has um, a teenage son, he's 19, he's going to university there. He was actually beaten up really badly and has been unable to go back to study because he got brain damage from the beating he received. These guys live with real persecution. So I was struck over and over by the faith of these guys and the willingness to love others even in the face of persecution and possibly death. They're constantly sharing their faith. And I'm like, I do that. But I don't even have, I don't have anything to fear. So, yeah, I was really challenged by this and I thought, how do we do the words of this prophecy? That's one of our guiding principles for this series. Adrian reminded you of that. How do we do the words of Revelation? How do we do the letter to Smyrna? Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I'm not trying to knock you guys that are having a hard time. I know you suffer. I know there are things which are really hard. I know there's stuff we don't see coming, stuff that really gets our goat. Some of us have a hard time in our workplaces because we're Christians. Others just have rubbish going on in our lives that sucks. 
Some of us have non-Christian family members that make things really hard to do what we do and believe what we believe. I don't want to knock any of that. But I do want to say, that's not fearing for your life. That's not fearing prison. So, can we be faithful, even to the point of death? These guys were. The guys in Indonesia and PNG are. So do not be afraid, Willowburn. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. That's what King Jesus says. Now, uh, Alan goes, you go to PNG? I know Elton. You know Elton. I can vouch for what you said. Yep. Um, I'll go back to my, that one, because I want to talk a bit more about Smyrna. So, Alan tells us that whenever he talks to someone, he goes straight to the Bible. That's fantastic. That's great. That's where the source of power is. Um, we did a lot of study in the Bible at this leadership conference, but we also studied a sermon, just one by George Whitefield. And there was a quote, I know Alan always says, don't quote men, go to straight the Bible. Maybe when I've been walking with the Lord as long as he has, I'll have the same wisdom. But this one quote really stuck out to me from George Whitefield. I think it's relevant for us. He says, there are great many who bear the name of Christ, but do not know what real Christianity is. I am persuaded the majority of preachers talk of an unknown and unfelt Christ. The only way to restore the church to its dignity is to live and preach the message of Jesus Christ. The only way to restore us to our dignity is to live and preach the message of Christ. When you have once tasted of his love and felt the power of his grace in your heart, then you will love to speak of Jesus. And he finishes with this. Believe me, I am willing to go to prison or death for you, but I am not willing to go to heaven without you. Do you feel like that for your unsaved family? Do you feel like that for your workmates, your friends that don't know Jesus? I'm willing to go to prison or death for you, but I'm not willing to go to heaven without you. That quote really grabbed my heart and made me think, yeah, well, I've got to do more. I've got to reach out harder. I've got to talk to my, as much as I hate it, I've got to talk to my mother and father-in-law who aren't Christians and make things really hard for Sarah and I with the way they live and the choices they make. They need Jesus. And I'm going to need you guys to keep me accountable for that because I really don't like them. <laughs> so how do we do the words of this prophecy? Well, it's manning up. It's being faithful. It's facing a little bit of oppression, some nasty words, a bit of rejection, or being ostracized at work, having to eat your lunch alone. That's nowhere near what the guys in Smyrna were dealing with. That's nowhere near what our Lord had when he went to the cross. So let me ask a few, a few more questions. Do you love to speak of Jesus? Think about it. When you meet people, what's the first thing you want to talk about? Tell me. No wrong answers. Mine isn't Jesus, by the way. I'm the evangelist. I'm the preacher today. But the first thing I do when I meet someone is not, so have you heard about this great guy that died for me? What's the first thing you talk about? The weather. The weather. Easy. No dramas. No issues there. What else? Kids. Kids. Yep. Work. Work. For me, it's games I play and books I'm reading. <laughs> not really on the right track. Do you love to speak of Jesus? Whitefield said... Once you've tasted of his love and felt the power of his grace on your heart, you will love to speak of Jesus. Not to the easy people, not to you guys in church, but to the people that need him, the people that still don't know him. Who is there in your life that you're willing to go to prison or death for? Sarah and Abby, that's mine. How about you guys? 
family, friends? Yep, cool. All right. Who are you not willing to go to heaven without? Who is there in your life that you don't want to get to heaven and be like, oh, they didn't make it? I've got lots. My mate Bambi. My mother and father-in-law. Sarah's brothers and sisters. None of them are Christians. None of them are walking with God. I've got a brother who's walked away from God. I don't want to go to heaven and find out he didn't make it. So I'm going to need you guys to keep me accountable for going after them, trying to reach them. We can spend, How do we do the words of this prophecy? We can stand with Smyrna. Where is Smyrna today? Where is the church of Smyrna? Maybe it is in Izmir, where there's only 4,000 believers under constant oppression from Muslims. Maybe it's right on our doorstep in PNG and Indonesia. What can we do? How do we do the words of this prophecy? Maybe, like Alan, you'll go there and you'll do some stuff. Maybe you'll never get there. Maybe you'll always live in Australia. But there is always something we can do. Maybe it's awareness. Maybe it's keeping your vision big. Maybe it's looking at what's happening through Voice of the Martyrs, things like that, and praying for these oppressed countries. Maybe it's supporting kids overseas. Maybe it's just thinking, oh, Camille's talking about her friend in Pakistan again. Maybe I should actually give some money to that this time. I don't know. What is it for you? How do we do the words of this prophecy? Stand with Smyrna. We're not a persecuted church, but persecution is coming because I think we're an Ephesian church. I think we've left our first love. Maybe one way that we can regain that alpha love, that warrior love that Adrian talked about, is to go out and help the guys that are dying, help the guys that are persecuted. They are there. There are brothers and sisters all around the world. So that concludes my sermon. I just wanted to tell you about one little way that Sarah and I have committed to only today that we're, um, we're going to do this. This is a simple water bottle, about 600 mils. I got it at the conference. They were giving them out. One of our ministry arms in powder chains here in Australia is called GAIN. It stands for Global Aid Network. And they have a bunch of different initiatives in different closed countries. And one of the, um, one of the things they do in Africa especially, but also in some other places, is this initiative called Water for Life. And basically, it is providing a well, a clean capped well, that can provide drinking water to a bunch of people in a city. And with that comes an opportunity to say, why are you doing this, to provide jobs for people, to share the gospel while they're there, etc., etc., etc. So this bottle, I'll read you what it says. A child dies from preventable water-related disease every 90 seconds. You can help bring change. In fact, all you need is some change. Help raise funds for Gaines Water for Life projects by filling this bottle with $2 coins. Once full of $2 coins, that's the only thing that will fit in there, by the way, except a 5 cent piece, so don't cheat. Um, if you try to decide to do it, we'll have to not cheat. Um, filled with $2 coins, this bottle can contain up to $600. That gives disease-free water to 60 people for up to 25 years. Not much. Again, $200 for the, um, the projector to get up to the mountains of PNG. $600 to provide a well that would give a village of 60 people water for 25 years. How will you stand with Smyrna? How will you do the words of this prophecy? That's it.